Hello and welcome to the India Energy Hour. I am Sandeep Pai, a former journalist with Hindustan Times and now an energy researcher at the University of British Columbia. And I'm Shreya Jay, journalist with Business Standard newspaper in Delhi, writing on the energy sector. Together, we are really excited to co-host a new podcast on India's energy transition, the India Energy Hour. This podcast is hosted by 101 Reporters, an innovative news agency that connects grassroots reporters and media houses to bring out untold stories. The show is produced by Tejas Dayan and Sagar of 101 Reporters. In this podcast, we want to unpack and document India's energy transition. We will interview leading energy, development and climate experts from academia, civil society and the government. Through these interviews, we will explore the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities in the energy transition unfolding in India. We will examine the role of government, finance, social justice and science. Over time, we will feature other countries of the global south as well. India's energy sector policies are complex. Federal government ministries promote different energy policies that are sometimes at odds with one another. Adding to this complexity, state governments actually have to implement these policies but have different priorities. In our fourth episode, we spoke to Anand Swaroop about the complexity of energy policy making in India and how can the country balance its energy sector policies. Anil is the former Federal Coal Secretary of India and one of the country's most well-known bureaucrats. Anil Swaroop's three decades working at various level of government have given him a ringside view of policy making. In this episode, he provides a 360 degree view of energy policies in India. Thank you so much sir for joining us and we cannot uh, say it in enough words what an honor it is to have you with us as our guest. We are absolutely thrilled. to know your views to talk with you uh, so but let's first start with you uh, let our uh, listeners know about you so can you describe your journey uh, where are you from what did you study what made you choose civil services and some of the key episodes from your journey you have written a book on it which is a very interesting book uh, a lot of uh, budding civil servants should read it absolutely so if you can share some bits of, from your career some of the interesting uh you know uh, uh postings that you had in up in coal uh in during up era and obviously how's life post retirement uh i i uh, had my schooling at various places my father was also a civil servant he used to be posted at different places so i had my schooling in different places finally i settled down in a school called colvin dalgars college in lucknow where i did my Uh, high school and intermediate, and then I did my graduation and post graduation from Madhavad University. Getting into the civil service was a decision that probably my father had taken very early in my life, and uh, it was his dream. So I made that dream as my own, and then worked towards it, and finally made it to the IAS in the year 1981. Before that, I got into the police service, but I think that was not good enough for my dad. and for me as well so i appeared again and qualified for the ias it's been a very very fascinating journey uh, and at the end of it uh, ended in 2018 i write in my book that if i were to be born again i'd like to be an ias officer all over so whereas initially the, the dream of getting into the civil service was of my dad 
But if I were to be born again, it would be my own dream to become an IS officer because of the opportunities that the service offers. Absolutely amazing set of opportunities. Uh, you can actually uh, uh, help, assist uh, a lot of poorest of the poor in the country. And I don't think the numbers that you can influence in the civil service or the IS, uh, such numbers are very uh, available in any other service anywhere in the world. So, for example, I did a scheme called Rashtriya Swasthya Bima Yojana, the health insurance scheme, which was arguably the biggest health insurance scheme in the world, which has now morphed into Ayushman Bharat by the new government. But even at that point in time, I was influencing people of more than 300 million, which is an amazing, amazing number I don't think anyone can think of. The journey in the civil service was very, very exciting, apart from extremely fulfilling. Uh, the reason why I wrote the second book, first was not just a civil servant, which should have been a book only on Rashtriya Saad Bhima Yojana, the health insurance scheme, because that was absolutely an amazing experience. But thereafter, I held assignments in coal and education, which were equally exciting. So I, my first book gives more about these three aspects. But the second book, Ethical Dilemmas of Civil Servant, was basically on my understanding of the civil service. And I, since I used to go a lot to the Lal Bahadur Shastri National Academy, where IS officers are trained periodically, and I used to interact with officers of various seniorities at various levels. And I discovered that when an officer joined the service, he had a lot of enthusiasm, excitement. Uh, he, I mean, there was a lot of energy. But as he went up the ladder, uh, I discovered that a lot of enthusiasm was lost. Cynicism came in in a large number of officers. And while interacting with them, I discovered that many of them were blaming uh, blaming others uh, and the circumstances for the inability to perform the best they could. And in order to dispel these misapprehensions, I wrote this book. And the underlying principle of that book was that if a civil servant so desired, irrespective of the set of circumstances, he could perform a lot. The book actually concludes with Actually, the essence of this couplet is that so much, so much depends on the individual because despite these difficult set of circumstances, there are a large number of officers that have performed well. So if it were to do with the circumstances, then even they wouldn't have done well. So the key factor here is where are we looking at? Who are we looking at? If you're looking at officers that have performed well, probably we'll seek inspiration or get inspired by their functioning despite these set of circumstances. And that is what the essence of the book is. My personal experience also makes me believe that that is true. And that is what has been outlined in the second book, Ethical Dilemmas of Civil Servant, where I give more than 70 personal incidents where I try and explain that irrespective of the set of circumstances, if an officer is focused, he's aware of the consequences, do not bother about the consequences. If he believes in the moment that he is in and he enjoys the moment, I think by and large he'll be successful. So it, it is actually trying to prove that ethical behavior does pay. Uh, normally it is understood that ethical behavior doesn't pay. Now I don't want to go into the details of how I do that, but my personal experience tells me that. So, for example, when I started my career, in the initial period, I did face a lot of dilemmas, ethical and non-ethical dilemmas. And I was not very clear in my mind as to which path to be taken. And I, I write that in my book that some of the decisions that I took at, at that point in time 
maybe now I will not make those decisions. I have questioned them. But as I went along and as I rose up the ladder, as I got more years of experience behind me, I ceased to have any dilemmas in my mind. Objectively, perhaps the dilemmas did exist, but I was very clear in my mind. And let me give you two instances just to explain to you what exactly does it mean. So when I was a greenhorn, posted as subdivision magistrate in a place called Ardoi, it's in the center of UP, uh, you know, also a center of crime and law and order problems. But this was 1984 when Mrs. Indra Gandhi had got assassinated. And I was subdivision magistrate in charge of the law and order of that subdivision. And all hell seems to have broken loose because there were some ruling party goons that were actually indulging in arson and intimidating people belonging to the minority community. So I got down to business and I soon discovered that a very powerful ruling party MLA was behind all this. Now, the dilemma before me was whether I should initiate action against him because he, he, he had a reputation of his own and not many officers took him on. Finally, I decided to take him on. I made out an NSA case, National Security Act case, and sent it across to the district magistrate. This MLA got the wind of this report of mine, and he went straight away to the state headquarters. And sure enough, I was summoned to Lucknow, the state headquarters, to explain my conduct. So instead of the MLA being asked to explain his conduct, I was asked to explain this conduct. I was pretty put off. But when the officer asked me why I had done what I had done, I explained to him. So he seemed to agree with the approach that I adopted because I had good reasons to make out a case against him. But despite all this, he asked me to withdraw the file. Now, another dilemma before me that I had done nothing wrong. Um, why should I withdraw the file? So I politely told him that it may not be possible because the ultimate decision-making authority was the district magistrate. Why should I withdraw the file? So I came back to my district headquarters and as expected, I was transferred out of the district. Now, I was young impressionistic and I was very upset because I thought I had done nothing wrong and I had been transferred out. I thought I was being penalized. Now, this was one uh, response or my reaction to a transfer. Look at the other situation. Later on, much later, in a similar situation, I was posted now in district magistrate, uh, as district magistrate like in Burkiri and the Ram Janmumi agitation was going on. Um, the, my district was very peaceful. I did not have to impose curfew as was the case in other districts because the people believed in the district administration. They knew that if anyone did any wrong, the district magistrate will put him behind the bars. But unfortunately, a murder had taken place and the district president of the ruling party wanted to take out a funeral position. This was a recipe for disaster. I was certain that if they took out the position, there'll be riots in the, in the district. So I persuaded him not to take out this position, but he insisted. So we had no option but to arrest him. Arresting district president of a ruling party is not a done, done thing. But by now, there was no dilemma in my mind. I was clear that if someone is trying to do anything wrong, I'll put him behind the bars. I was fully aware of the consequences. I told my wife that I could be transferred out. She was ultimately prepared. Sure enough, late in the evening at around 10 o'clock, the chief minister rang me up and asked me why had I put his president behind the bars. I explained the whole thing to him. He was not very satisfied. But he still asked me, what is the way out? You can't release him. I said, sir, I can't release him. Best would be if you could speak to him or somebody from Lucknow speaks to him and explain to him that this is your government. If there is a riot, you'll get a bad name. He was still not satisfied, the chief minister. So, of course, he put the phone down and I was preparing myself to get transferred. Next morning, I got an information that this gentleman who was wanted to take out the funeral position agreed not to take out the funeral position. So, I released him. And 
very surprisingly, two months down the line, the same chief minister awarded me as one of the best district magistrates in Lakhipur. It was then that it was gradually dawning on me, something which my mother had told me when I was a kid. Because in the first few years of my existence in the school, I never won a prize, a certificate, a medal or a cup, nothing. I used to feel very frustrated. My mother used to tell me, your time will come. And then she used to use, she used to tell me this, which I didn't understood then. I didn't understand the import of these words when I was a kid, when my mother used to explain it to me, but I never understood it. It was now that I was understanding that my control was only on my actions. Results were not in my hand. And this was a clear demonstration that in one case, I was transferred out. In another case, I was rewarded. Circumstances were the same. So the maturity comes to you when you start realizing this. I understood that. And right through my career, there have been many instances where rewards have come to me. I don't know whether I deserve them. In some cases, rewards didn't come to me. It didn't really matter to me. In many other cases, I, in another case, when I was transferred out, when the chief secretary was very upset because the chief minister asked me to be transferred out because the minister was after me. So when chief, chief secretary asked me, uh, just because you wanted to save a, a colleague of yours, you have been transferred out. So my response then was very different. I told him, uh, transfer is like death for a civil servant. It is inevitable. Something which is inevitable, why do you bother about it? And moreover, I believed in Hindu philosophy. So transfer doesn't mean your life comes to an end. It is death, but you're going to be reborn. And if you want to be reborn, why bother about what you're doing? So enjoy the moments that you're in. Chief Secretary started smiling. And I was gradually becoming convinced that I shouldn't be bothered about consequences at all and lead my life the way it was. So it carried on that way till I became goal secretary there again. I remember when I became goal secretary, I didn't know much about the sector. I did read in the newspapers that lot had gone wrong. Scams had happened. So I rang up a friend of mine and asked him, how is this sector? So instead of answering my question, he asked me a question. Have you seen gangs of Basipur? So I understood how the sector was. And I had a great time. In fact, that was the most challenging time of my career. But I loved it because I had an amazing team. Uh, in the beginning, yes, there was a bit of a problem. But at some point in time, very soon, we had developed so much positive energy uh, that we used to jokingly say, give us the Kashmir problem. We just might be able to find a solution to it. So, I think it had more to do with your own attitude than circumstances. And I was gradually discovering that you have absolutely no control over certain circumstances. So might as well do what you have to do and have a ball. I had a ball during the service. I enjoyed every moment of it. And that's why I want to become a match also. That's great, sir. Uh, before I go, I really would want to understand, you know, this nexus of politics and policymaking and how usually in most of the cases, Politics is a political pressure is a big hindrance in public policy. But before we go into that, I want to understand from you the <clears throat> broad public policy making in India. You know, uh, we will talk about in context with energy and climate change. But before I want to understand broadly that, you know, how do and why do some policies fail in India despite India's brightest brain behind them and some others succeed? So if you can explain us uh, a bit about that. Let us try and understand uh, not how policy is formulated because policy gets formulated in a number of ways and it has no it has no purpose as such. But we must understand why some policies fail and why succeed. Let's try and understand that. Number one, I think there is no dearth of ideas in this country. Even in COVID times, if you walk down the street and ask anybody, he'll, he'll tell you what needs to be done. Almost everyone seems to be having an idea. But for an idea to fructify and sustain in a democracy like ours, and listen to this very carefully, it has to be politically acceptable, socially desirable, 
technologically feasible, financially viable, administratively doable, judicially tenable, and I've added a seventh dimension, thanks to these farm laws, it has to be emotionally relatable. Now, let me take a minute or two to explain to you what I'm trying to say, and you'll understand why some policies happen and why don't happen. Policy making is not a problem, but policy doing is important. The problem in this country is not diagnosis or prescription, there are most of them. The problem is of application. Now, why? First, I don't think any idea will travel much of a distance if it doesn't have a political backing. Because we live in a democracy, and rightly so, I think ultimate responsibility of what happens or doesn't happen to a policy rests with the politician. So any idea that you may have, you will, it is not to say that it won't work. The question is, as a civil servant, my job was to present the idea in a manner that the politician found value in it. That's very important. And let me give you a totally different example, which does not directly relate to policy, but how politicians act, probably it will probably answer some of the questions that you would have, would ask me subsequently. After I was district magistrate, for some reason, Mr. Kalyan Singh, when he became chief minister, I had never met him, but he picked me up as his special secretary and director information. He later on told me why he did that, but I had never met him. So as director information in public relations, which is a very powerful job there, my job was basically to interface with the media and every morning brief the chief minister about the media coverage of the previous day. So on this particular day, I put in about a month or so, I went to his residence and that was my drill in the morning. And when I arrived at his residence in his drawing room, uh, the chief secretary and the director general of police were already there. And the chief minister, for some reason, was a bit agitated. Normally, very staid, quiet man, but he was agitated. And I just stood there and was listening to the conversation. And the conversation was around the uh, public meetings that he had to address in a by-election to take place in town. And he was agitated because someone, without asking him, him, had fixed seven meetings in a day. And he was not well and he didn't want to attend the last meeting. So he was asking somebody, some personal staff, that who fixed these meetings, cancel those last two meetings. I can't do seven, I'll do only five. And both the chief secretary and DGP were vehemently agreeing. Now, this is a purely political issue. I did not have spoken in my book. I say I should have kept quiet, but I couldn't. I was youngster, emotional. I mean, so I just butted in. I said, sir, a few days ago, I was district master in the computer And when a chief minister visits a, a, a district, there's a lot of excitement, people, a lot of anticipation. So my suggestion is you may go for two minutes only. Don't say much. Just go there. Don't speak but don't disappoint them. So he appeared a bit angry, looked at me and said, will I be able to go? So the moment he said this, the chief secretary started nudging and asking me to shut up. But I continued, I said, sir, my job is to tell you what I think is right. Decision is yours, you can still go and retire those meetings. The nudging was even harder. After that, there was a print of silence and then Mr. Kalyan Singh turns towards me again and says, Anil ji, I think you are right. The moment he said that, the nudging stopped immediately and the chief secretary said, you are right. Now, I had forgotten this incident. But he remembered this because when he became chief minister again the second time, I never went to meet the politician, so I didn't go to meet him even this time. So three days after he rang me up, he said, you haven't come to meet me. Others have. I said, I thought you would be busy. I'll join you whenever you want me. You come just now. So I went to meet him. He said, I want to make you secretary. You my secretary. By which time I had got promoted from special secretary to secretary. I said, sir, it's your choice. If you want me to become secretary, I'll become your secretary. Then he asked me, you won't ask me why I want to make you secretary. I said, you must have thought about it. 
Then he said, sit down, I'll tell you. Then he narrated this incident, which I told you. I had forgotten about it. He said that I wanted a person like you to be around to tell me his free and frank opinion. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this is, I said what I said was thought was correct. And I packaged in the manner which I best thought it is. If I can package my ideas in a manner that politician ultimately accepts it, it becomes politically acceptable. So there's no such thing as political non-acceptability, but there are chances. Are. So for example, in case of reservation, if you tell some politician that reservation should be done away with, it will be a political haraki, you will not accept it. I'm taking an extreme example just to illustrate that unless an idea is politically accepted, it won't sell. Then it has to be socially desirable. Meaning thereby the client for whom you are making a scheme or a policy, it should be useful to them. If it's not useful to them, it will not last long. Similarly, technologically feasible. If the, if the necessary technology does not exist, how will you, how will it take? Like today, everyone is talking about artificial intelligence. It's a fact. They don't use their common sense and intelligence that they have. They want to talk of it. Because no one else also expects. And my problem is, I used to tell Mr. Modi also, when I was there, sir, why can't we use the existing technology? Why can't all the ministries dispense with files and papers? And she knows it. I didn't have a file or a paper. All file and paper were digitized. Why can't we do that? Yet we'll talk about that. It's like Make in India line, no? It will shout all over the world. How much it has traveled, no one is going to question. But Make in India, Germany, everywhere in the world, Make in India line is shouting all over the place. And no one writes. No one actually looks into whether that Make in India line the amount of expenditure that were incurred, whether it traveled any distance. So this is third, technologically feasible. Then financially viable. Unless you have money to back your idea, how much distance will it travel? It has to have money. You have to have money. But you know, until about few years ago, now I'm glad it is no more. Every railway minister in his railway budget speech used to announce so many railway lines, knowing fully well they will be not made. How it won't travel much of a distance. Administrative doability. If you don't have relevant people sitting at relevant places, if human resources not managed appropriately, no matter how good an idea, politically acceptable, socially desirable, financially viable, no, idea will not work. Similarly, judiciary, we all know which side of the now it is even more dicier, whether they will say yes or no, you don't know. But basically, it has to be constitutionally valid, legally valid, any idea, otherwise it won't. And finally, emotionally relatable. This is in the context of this Farms Bill, because Farms Bill is, my understanding, is very useful for the uh, for the farmers. But look at the mess that has happened because it was managed very poorly. It, it was rushed through in Rajya Sabha, created an impression that is being pushed down somebody's throat, and it's not working. So you have to have these seven factors clearly understood for a policy to actually happen. Great, uh, thank you, sir. I think now we'll slowly, I mean, I'm just processing, it's expanded my brain. So I'm processing all the, the framework that you presented. Uh, I wanted to ask this question a bit later, but now you have nicely presented this framework. So I'll go ahead and ask this question. Um, can you talk about commercial coal mining as a policy within this framework? Because this is a very good framework to think about that, right? At a time when solar is rising and obviously coal is still, you know, rising, but you know it has a limited long-term future. Uh, so, can you elaborate on like what what? Yeah. 
Okay. First of all, let me tell you about the goal part. I think it's a passion to deride goal. No harm. I mean, uh, many people get their money out of it. They have their living out of deriding goal. Or, but let's be practical. I remember when uh, I was school secretary, there was this conference going on. I'm forgetting the name of the in Paris, where all the uh, environmentalists were gathering together. I Someone had suggested, why don't you accompany us to Paris? I said, I'll get killed because all of them will think that he's the villain of the piece. I didn't do that. So those guys came to Delhi with all BB British product testing corporation, Australian product, ABC, BBC, CBC, DBC, all BCs came to uh, Delhi and interviewed. And they asked me this question that till when will coal be done away with and why is coal destroying environment? I said, you tell me one thing. India's per capita consumption, at least till then, I don't have the relevant figures now. This is 2015 or 16. Um, per capita consumption was equivalent to the per capita consumption, power consumption in the US in the late 19th century. So what do you expect us to do? If I stop excavating coal, should I start burning wood? What is the alternative available? If I don't have an alternative, I think you suggest an alternative. Just don't just give me gyan. You know, some many of the guys who travel from across the Atlantic are gyani purushas. They come with a lot of gyan and then they fight the situation very hot in Delhi, work here for one year, two year, three year, then curse the country and go back to the US and start giving gyan from there. So I'm very petrified of these gyanis from across the Atlantic. I tell them, come walk with me. Let's, let's go to the soil and see what's the problem. So the, the problem, yes, there is a problem with coal, but I don't have an alternative, so I have to do it. Now, Coming to commercial mining, I remember in 2015 itself, we had brought this issue before the Prime Minister. Both Mr. Arun Jaitley and the Prime Minister agreed with my proposition that commercial, we should go ahead with commercial mining. The tragedy was that my minister was not fully convinced. I don't know what was this. So when the file went to him, just sat on the file. And it took another four years for the file to come back and government announcing commercial mining. I'm all in favor of commercial. I mean, if I have coal, if I have the demand, the option is that if there is a demand that will be fulfilled either by importing coal or producing coal in India, how else is it going to be fulfilled? Now, the, I asked the environmentalist whether it is environmental friendly to import coal from Indonesia and South Africa or whether it is slightly more friendly to excavate coal in India and use it here. What is more environmental? My limited understanding of environment uh, is that importing it causes perhaps more pollution than excavating here and using it here. I mean, comparatively speaking. Obviously, if you can do away with coal, please do away with if you are not territory. But if the choice is between importing coal and producing coal within the country, then why not produce coal in the country? Now, number two, coal India has limited capacity. Now, even lesser capacity. In fact, at that point in time, coal you were Coal India, during my time as Secretary, Coal India was sitting on 50,000 crores worth of cash. And we could plan the increase in coal production. Now I'm told they're sitting on about 10 to 15,000. The rest of it has been sucked out for a variety of reasons. Now they don't have money. They may be talking about big things, but I don't think Coal India has the wherewithal. Coal India is one of the finest companies that I've seen, but they don't have the wherewithal. So I'll come to this issue later on about how we are messing up with the PSUs. But that's a different matter. But Coal India was a very sound company doing very good work. It could have possibly done that, but we've left. Now, that being the case, why not allow commercial mining? What's wrong in it? So, I would go ahead with commercial mining and uh, free 
the coal sector as much as possible. Regulation has more to do with environmental uh, regulations and other regulations, but not in the sense of only uh, keeping the monopoly of, of coal India as far as coal mining. Just to follow up to that very interesting answer, I mean, I'm thinking about your framework because I, I love thinking about the framework you presented, you know, the it should be politically acceptable, socially, uh, you know, acceptable and so on. So uh, I understand that politically it will be acceptable because, you know, leading political parties are supporting. Uh, but is it socially acceptable in those regions? It is socially desirable. I'll, I'll explain this to you. You know, there are no absolutes in considering whether one option should be taken, the other option should be taken. We'll have to look at options. What is the alternative for the society as compared to coal? I am not saying this is the perfect solution, but some, no one has been able to come up with an alternative solution which can help me understand that my energy requirements will be fulfilled through replacement of coal. Let me, let me look at the effort that the government has made in the context of solar energy. Now, is it in a position today or is it likely to be in a position in the next 10 years to replace coal? I, you know, I have written quite extensively on this. And my take is, if we don't balance what we are getting through solar energy, we will be in very serious trouble in the days to come. Because as luck would have it, in India, solar energy is available during the day. Okay. Now for grid, grid parity purposes, what do I do? I back down my thermal power plants. Backing down is a cost which is presently being owned by thermal power plants. Now, thermal power plants are already in trouble for different reasons. Because of discounts are not paying the Genco, Genco's are not paying Coal India. For a variety of reasons, that the generating companies are in serious trouble in any case financially. Now, I'm pushing more burden. We are passing on the solar cost to the thermal generation. Now, look at what happens. In the evening, when I require my power, I don't have solar energy. So, when I, what, I, what do I do? Then I'll say, you jack up production in the thermal. Now, thermal is not switch on, switch off. Gas maybe, but coal-based power plants, they require some time to jack up, to come back down. It doesn't work automatically as outsiders think, why don't you do it? It doesn't work. It has to, I used to say it then also, that it has to be valid with hydro or by gas. Now, we have not gone for a comprehensive power energy policy. We are only touting solar, solar and solar. And we give those numbers, which are so misleading. You know, the maximum or the best ELF of a solar plant is 20%. Not more than that. If that be the case, what are we talking about? One gigabyte or whatever that number is. I mean, effectively, we have to be realistic about what we're saying. You know, we have not looked at energy in a holistic manner. We have made it into some sort of a publicity stunt. And that is why our thermal sector is suffering and no one seems to be talking about it because coal is a dirty word. So that's the tragedy. My suggestion has always been, look at it. I remember my first meeting with the Prime Minister as coal sector. And you know, the coal sector has been the usual whipping boy of hiding the inefficiencies of the power sector. And this first meeting was quite a revelation. The power secretary, who later on became the cabinet secretary and presently advising the government, made a presentation and said most of the problems of power sector are because of coal. So the PM turns towards me. I just think, you know, he tells me, Anil ji, if you can somehow, Hindi may he said, Anil ji, agar aap coal sector ko thik kar de, is desh ki aarthik siti sudar jayegi. Okay. Now, I'm not the one who takes everything in. I, I responded. 
I told him, sir, I agree that well, maybe one of the factors of the problems in the power sector. But I think, sir, we'll have to look at it comprehensively. There are many factors that determine the mess in the power sector. He turned towards Mr. Piyushbhal, who was the minister for both the ministries, and said, Anil ji, say kya rahe? Isko aap comprehensively dekhe. No one looked at it comprehensively, power sector. And that is why power sector continues to be in a mess. Because no one had the courage to face facts. You know, in 2000, I recently wrote an article. In 2014, both power and coal sector were in mess. Coal sector came out in 2016. Big time, we were even thinking in terms of exporting gold to Bangladesh. But power sector never came out of the mess it was. Because no one wanted to discuss the mess in the power sector. It was all being pushed under the carpet. If that be the case, how do you find? For finding solution to any problem. If you don't accept the existence of a problem, we'll never find it. First step is accept. But we were living in a different world. All problem is because of coal. And someone kept telling about coal. Coal improved even then. They used to say, power up. You said, what's your problem? I just want to additionally ask here, now that we are comparing the problems of coal and power, uh, uh, you know, in, I, I believe this and you, uh, you uh, can uh, disagree as well that in coal, I guess it was easier, you know, to push the reforms. So you also mentioned about the team. I have interacted with the team that you mentioned. Oh, absolutely, I agree. Amazing team that pushed the reform. But also because it's a central subject. In case of power, uh, there is a federal structure. And there have been schemes. There were three schemes earlier. There was the Skuda that happened, which, as again you said, was to make the headlines. But the, do you think this federal structure restricts the reforms in the power sector? Also, do you think there is a way out there? Yeah, I will leave it to your judgment after you heard me now. Okay. Coal may be a central subject, but all activities in the states, can you excavate an ounce of coal without taking state governments into confidence. You require land acquisition. Who does land acquisition? Entire activity by the state government. Environment and forest clearance. Where is the entire procedure done? Entire is done in the state government. So technically, it may be a, a central subject, but all activities in the state. So the solution that was sought in coal could have been done. As coal secretary, I did not convene a single meeting at the at, in Delhi, despite being a central subject. That is the difference between power and coal. All meetings of power were long meetings were held in Delhi. And I am on record. I sent a note to the minister because we had a common minister. Why are we having these meetings in Delhi? Why can't we go to the states? Why can't we partner with states? Imagine, you're talking of the center and state subjects. Coal comes from West Bengal. Who's in power there? Odisha, who's in power there? Jharkhand, who's in power there? Chhattisgarh, who's in power there? These are the four major states where you have coal, all ruled by opposition states. If can, could, can it be worse than this in terms of getting things done on the ground? So what do you do? This strategy was wrong of Uday. I had been repeatedly saying that secretary should not be sitting in Delhi. He should be traveling to the state, sit with the chief secretary, power secretary. Not only that, there is a clear example of success in Gujarat. If Gujarat could do it, at that point in time, there was a BJP government in Rajasthan. I used to say, why can't a team from Rajasthan sit in Gujarat, understand from them how they've done it, get experts from Gujarat to Rajasthan, get it moving. If Gujarat can do it, 
Why can't Rajasthan do it? So what you are saying is that it, it is notional or fictional to say that it is a central subject or a state subject. Center in any case is a fiction, mind you. The actual activity happens in the state. So your strategy has to be such where you sit down with the stakeholders, not drive it down the throat, precisely what happened in the farms bill. It is not a question of center or state subject. It is a question of taking stakeholders into confidence. It is a question of taking partnering with the stakeholders, rather riding a rough shot over them. You can't boss over states, you can't, irrespective of the center of state subject. That's not the case. The case is whether you have taken these states into confidence by formulating a policy, whether you've taken states in the, into confidence by formulating a strategy, whether you've taken states into confidence by implementing that strategy. They have to be treated as partners, unfortunately. That has not been done in case of power sector. It is, it is not a question of you bossing over it. It's a question of effectively conveying a value proposition. If I mean, if you read my book, you will understand how one negotiated with each state to convey a value proposition to them. Coal was a central subject. Activity was in the state. It is much worse because I, I had nothing to offer otherwise. I had to convey a value proposition by indicating... I, I, I will give you an instance. I went over since Mamta Benati was firing salvos at the central government. I had to find a way. So what I did in in West Bengal, chief secretary happened to be a personal friend, a year junior to me. So instead of calling to Delhi, I could have called him to Delhi, and he would have come. I went to West Bengal. I went to Kolkata, took a half a sheet of paper with me, and met him. Had a cup of tea and told him, "This is what the state is doing every day by way of royalty." By employment opportunities. And what did I tell him? I told him, I can write a DO to you on this, as is normally the case from central government, but I don't want to put it on record. I just want to bring to your notice so that if you find time, please tell the chief minister that it has nothing to do with politics. It is beneficial to the state government. I don't know what he told Mamta Energy. Within 48 hours, I had land for six blocks for coal India. That's the way forward, irrespective of the central subject, state subject joint sector, whatever. This is all nonsense. It's a question of how you go about resolving issues. So, sir, one question. I mean, just again, picking on this point about how you manage center-state relation. Now, with respect to solar, we have a very ambitious target of 450 gigawatts. Um, easiest thing to do. <laughs> have an ambitious target. I mean, we are so ambitious and we tout it. We'll do this. It's a, I'm telling you, we will take other energy sectors along with the mind my words. You record this five years down the line, you're going to revisit. I talked about Uday five years ago, and Uday is exactly where I said five years ago because no one wants to look at it. Yes, please go ahead. Sorry. Right. I was just, I mean, exactly. My question is because you were at the helm, or at least you were at the coal ministry, and so you're familiar with the developments from 2015 onwards. Um, I wonder whether these announcements were made in consultation with states was were they you know part of the why is it 450 and not 475 like where does this come from and like were states consulted all along in making the plans you know um, i don't know about solar energy because i never knew whether they consulted or not but i know about coal one fine morning in a press conference the coal minister announces that we'll do 1 billion tons by 1920 so I asked him, how do we do it? No, no, we will, we will try. No, he announces first. And then he asked me how it is to be done. And then he's very confident we'll do it. We are into 2021. 
forget 1 million ton, we are trying to hit 600-700 million ton. I mean, when I am only concerned about the headlines on the following day, if that is the only case, and, the, and it's very simple. In India, we don't question the politicians about what they have announced. So they're very happy announcing. The day we start questioning that you made an announcement on this day for this, and this is the status, they will stop announcing. But we don't do that. Why? Because we are so fond of fireworks that if someone can give me fireworks every day, then I won't even ask what was the meaning of the firework yesterday. That's how we work. And we, we have that. And that's why things don't happen. Things will happen only if we are serious about announcing. I mean, I, I, the classic example is Make in India. No? no one is asking today how much distance has that line traveled. No one asking this question because there are so many other lines that have started rolling. So you are drowned by the voice of the other lines. Or the original line of Make in India, what happened? Nothing. You know, I don't know whether you're aware. The first time in the history of this country that from 2015 to 2021, 2016 to 2021, the rate of growth of GDP has been coming down consistently and no one is questioning it. There is something amiss somewhere. And we are busy with Punjadi and announcements. And that is why, as you say, you keep announcing. No, because you know for sure, no one is ever going to question whether you fulfill that announcement. You keep announcing. So is the case. See, solar energy, someone has to look into the details of what's actually happened on the ground. And what is happening on the ground? I think Shreya can look into it. Examine it, whether we are moving in the right direction or we are just going by the broad numbers, announcing we are becoming self-reliant, using these phrases. No. Look at the implication of what is happening. Look at everyone doubts that the, that the last bid was 2 rupees, 2 rupees, 10 pies per unit. What are we talking about? You're not even taking transmission cost. You are, you are using a wrong number to justify thing that you're doing. Someone has to, since no one has the time, because everyone is actually so enamored with the glitz and the glamour that is around us, that we don't have time to go into the details of it. Sir, I want to uh, ask you one question about, you know, the article. You wrote a very interesting article in July 2020 uh, for Millennial Post titled Balancing of Power. I'm going to quote you a little bit and then ask, uh, uh, some questions about that. You said, while quote, uh, while green energy is doubtless the future of energy production in India, advances in its use must not come at the cost of completely shunning thermal power plants. Uh, and then you further down in the article, you wrote, as coal secretary government of India, I was convinced that solar energy would play the most prominent role in the push for green energy. However, I was and still am against the mad rush for solar energy without taking into account all the associated features. There is indeed a moral dilemma as any reservation of difference of opinion against this mad rush is also have been deemed as opposition. Can you explain what you mean by balancing of power and how should I explained that in my last answer. My balancing of power is that solar energy is available at some point in time during the day. Now, for a variety of reasons, this power which is available during the day, similar power has to be available during the other times of the day for grid parity, as simple as that. And when we require power, till such time, we have storage of power, which we don't have at this point in time. We'll have to make an arrangement either with hydro energy or gas-based energy 
which can switch over from solar energy. So that balancing has to be there. If that balancing is not there, that solar energy will create trouble for your grid. And then when you need, you know, it is damaging, as I said earlier, the thermal power sector because you are forcing the thermal power plants to back down when solar energy becomes available during the day. Now, this is nonsensical because these, as I said, the thermal power plants are already under immense amount of financial stress for a variety of reasons. Now, you're pushing them further and this cost is not being borne by anybody else. It's being borne by the thermal power plants for blacking down. So, this is the reason why I said that balancing of solar power uh, energy is absolutely imperative in the long run. Not now. Even now it is damaging, but long run it will be devastating until less you are able to store power to be used when you require. Sir, uh, it, it, great you talked about all the energy sources and what kind of approach is taken in that. As things stand now uh, across the globe and also in India, what we all need is like an integrated approach wherein you can have optimum energy sourcing. Every energy source is giving uh, you know, its best out of it. Something that the current government also planned back in 2014 when they came in power, that silos should not be there, especially energy planning. That's why we had also had one minister overseeing uh, three departments altogether. But somehow, as, as an observer like me, it doesn't seem to have happened. Oil and gas is working on a different trajectory. They are thinking of an oil-based economy. Uh, power department is thinking of an electricity-based economy. And renewable is somewhere in between that hanging. Do you think that it is possible to have an integrated energy planning approach in this country? And also how? Absolutely. I have no doubt. It can be done, it should be done, and probably it will be done. The problem here is that people sitting there, and I don't bring politicians for that. Politicians have their own agenda. I think the civil servants have to come together, sit and work it out. You know, let me share it. I used to have these interactions with the secretaries. And they used to agree with me outside the room. In the meeting, they kept shut. I am unable to, because they were looking ahead. Because if you speak your mind out, then the chances are that you may not get post-retirement assignment. I remember in one of the meetings in, in PM's room, in a different context, I spoke my mind out and Prime Minister agreed with me. He agreed with me on an issue in which he was very annoyed with somebody else. When I came out, the Joint Secretary to PMO asked me, Sir, how are you able to speak to the Prime Minister this way? I told him, I don't need anything from him now, nor after retirement. I spoke what I had to speak. But some of us don't want to speak the truth inside, which we believe in it. I call it gross intellectual dishonesty. That if you have a point of view, you might as well present it. There be overruled. Fair enough. The number of cases where I was overruled. But if I don't speak up, see the tragedy is the number of cases where those guys agreed with me outside the room. And when they found that, you know, the ideas were veering around to something else, they kept shut. So I think it can be done, it should be done, probably it will be done. Probably there will be somebody, they will finally find somebody. There was somebody who could have done it, but unfortunately he was shifted out. He was made home secretary. Had Ajay Bala stayed there, he had worked with me in coal and I know him very well. He would have done it. But then, if there is a line for becoming cabinet secretary, advisor to prime minister's office, then obviously, I was also advised, why are you talking so it, it needs there needs to be a comprehensive policy. And let me tell you very clearly, the Prime Minister would love it because he used to say that, but you can't expect a Prime Minister to do that. There is somebody who has to do the groundwork, 
and come up with a comprehensive policy. I mean, I'm I'm just just as an aside. The prime minister is busy pushing all the projects in this country through his presidency. Why should a prime minister do that? Why can't he have civil servants who drive it the way it was driven in Project Monitoring Group, where we cleared five lakh crores worth of projects in fifteen months? See, I I I probably wrote an article since you he mentioned that article. I think one of the biggest failures this government has done fabulously in a number of sectors. One of the biggest failures has been human resource mismanagement. Until you have the right person for the right job, you may have the greatest of ideas. You know, I had said it. No administrative doability. That is where you have to have the right person for the right job. Look at some of the examples where you had the right person. You had Parmeshwar Nayar doing Swachh Bharat did brilliantly. You have Hindu Bhushan. Unfortunately, his term was not extended. He did fantastically in Ayushman Bharat. You know, no matter what we discuss here, wherever ultimate delivery. Is done by a human being, an officer sitting there. You know, I have often said, Ayodhya has not been run by Krau; it has to be run by Ramchandji. You have to get the right Ramchandrajis to run those organizations. If allegiance and pliability are the prime criteria to determine who's sitting where, we will be in trouble. It has to be efficiency, integrity, honesty, and your capability to deliver. Sir, one question. Let's talk a little bit about the future, right? About the energy sector and its future. Um, Wrong man to answer. <laughs> I don't have much of an idea about the future. I'm so obsessed with the present, and in any case, I don't have much of an idea what has been happening in the energy sector in the recent past. So maybe I, you can ask. I'll try and answer, but I'm not the right person. I mean, it's let's say let's let me tell you to speculate, or let's try yeah. to speculate a little bit. If not, you know. obviously we nobody knows what's going to happen in the future uh, but one we are, we just talked about the integrated energy policy uh, question going forward let's say in the in the present decade 2020 to 2030 like how should we approach coal and solar like what to what extent should both sources be harnessed and pushed i mean it's one thing to maintain and run power plants And not shun them out, but should we embrace and build more power plants and things like that? And of course, uh, how do so? How do we balance the power in the coming decade? First of all, let us understand what will be our demand, because we can't do it just like that. So much solar, solar. But first, the demand has to be, which is understood. We know what is going to be. There are projections for demand. Then see what of it can come from where, whether it is coming from thermal or solar. Now. Having said that, then we'll have to talk in terms of the the balance of power, which I keep saying, balancing that power. So as much solar you have, the sustain we have, the facility to store power, and we've been talking about this for five years. Till sustain, I think solar plants will have to be balanced to hydro or gas. That's where the combination comes in. So the priority should be for solar, gas, and hydro. Not priority should be only solar. and then you pick up thermal no it doesn't work that way the balancing will not come from thermal will come from the hydro and the gas part so that's one broader picture here my understanding and uh, my information may be dated my understanding is that you would still require about 60% of your energy coming from the thermal sources not less so if that be the case then we have to have more thermal power plants given the fact that the plf Uh, right now, I think if I don't know how much is PLF, it tells me fifty-seven, fifty-eight, or fifty-nine. Whatever will be the PLF of the thermal power plants. That being the case, 
I think we require more thermal. The existing, the second would be to somehow phase out the inefficient thermal markets. Now you have more efficient technology available for a better PLF and phase those out. But it's like phasing out those coal mines which are inefficient. Similarly, phase out those. So it has to be focused on phasing out those thermal power plants. And I don't know now because at that point in time, there were power plants which had a PLF of 30%, 40%. Why in the hell are we running those power plants? I mean, even though, I mean, again, my limited understanding was that those that have lower PLF are more polluting. I, I don't know whether I'm totally right or wrong, but they are of older technology and hence they are more polluting. So pollution has to be a major consideration. But I think the fundamental understanding has to be that our energy requirements have to be met. Where am I going to? I'll just uh, like to add or ask just one thing. You you gave these seven pillars. Uh, do you want to now add environment consciousness to it as well? In so it's a part of it. Could be part of these seven. It could be a part of when you say social desirability. I think environmental awareness is a part of social desirability. It can't be without your consideration for environment. Thanks a lot. It it was a wonderful and very very fascinating conversation. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you. For more information about the podcast, visit us online at www.101reporters.com slash podcast slash the underscore India underscore energy underscore hour. You can also reach out to us on social media and send us your comments and suggestions. My Twitter handle is at Sandeep Pai with a double I and Shreya's Twitter handle is at Shreya underscore J.